following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to start working our way through uh, this often overlooked gospel. And uh, we'll begin this morning by looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And let's begin by reading God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, Where is Nolan? Nolan, are you there somewhere? I'm not seeing you, Nolan. Okay, um, can you fix my mic, please? It sounds terrible. Um, before we go any farther, it's just so distracting for me when it doesn't sound right. Uh, I don't know how it sounds out there, but it just sounds really bad up here. Uh, are you sounding okay? Any better? Eh, all right. Still sounds terrible in my ears, but um, um, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you, you might wonder why are there four Gospels, um, and especially since. Uh, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have so much of the same material. And uh, the, the differences are, can at first glance seem a little bit subtle. Why do we need four of them, or these three at least? John is, is pretty unique. Um, but uh, we will see as we go through the book of Mark that, that Mark really does tell many of the same stories as, as Matthew and Luke, but he tells them differently. Uh, he leaves out a lot of things that uh, Matthew and Luke include, and he includes some things they leave out. Uh, but more importantly, um, is, is really the purpose that Mark has and the way he goes about it. And one of the unique uh, features of the Gospel of Mark is that Mark really wants us to just meet Jesus personally. Uh, he spends a lot less time talking about Jesus' teaching and really just brings us face-to-face with Jesus. And uh, he... Uh, we, it gets lost in, in our English translation, but he uses verb tenses that make it very much uh, present. So instead of saying Jesus went and Jesus did this past tense, he, he puts it in the present tense. Jesus is going, right? Jesus comes. And so it's the idea that, that we, we meet Jesus, and he really wants us to kind of jump into the book and, and, and journey with, with Christ, right? And, and so he gives a very real-life look at at Jesus. 
And he begins here by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes uh, a passage from the Old Testament. Uh, But this is actually really unique in the book. Because as we get into the book later after this introduction, introductory passage, uh, we find that he, he paints this very real picture of Jesus as you would have encountered him uh, 2,000 years ago. And, uh, you know, when Jesus first appeared on the scene, he, he didn't glow in the dark. Right? Um, there was nothing that necessarily marked him out. Uh, when uh, We'll see next week when Jesus is baptized. He's in this crowd of people who are coming to be baptized. And nothing about Jesus marked him out as unique. Right, and for the for the people who knew Jesus, who watched him, uh, as we journey with them, they didn't really know what to do with Jesus. They they didn't really get his mission or his purpose. And throughout the the gospel, they're constantly bewildered at, at who Jesus is, and they don't understand him. Right, um, and and that's that's the way it really was. Right, uh, Mark probably got his um, information from Peter. Uh, and so he had this first, uh, first-hand witness of, of how it really was. And, and Peter probably was very honest in sharing, yeah, we didn't get Jesus, <laughs> you know, until after he died and rose again and the Holy Spirit came. We were confused, right? And so Mark captures that very well. But in the beginning, in these first few verses, we get a rare glimpse in Mark uh, behind the scenes, right? So he starts off, with an unusually bold declaration about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, it's a rare moment that we don't get through most of the rest of the book. Um, so he's pulling back the veil, as it were, and giving us, uh, ahead of time, a clear indication of who Jesus is. That he's not just any ordinary person, he's not just a prophet, he is... Uh, he's, he, is the, he is the gospel. When it says here it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it means that Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the, the glad tidings of great joy that is being announced. Uh, and a lot of that gets lost uh, later when Jesus is just a, a man that we encounter, although an exceptional man. Right, so we get this picture of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and this is the beginning of This is how it all began. And he begins by this word of preparation, right? Uh, as it is written in Isaiah, Behold, I send a messenger who will prepare the way for you. And so we want to look this morning at what it means to prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, we live in a city here in Chiang Mai that knows how to prepare for a royal visit, right? If you've lived here for any any amount of time, you, and if you pay attention, uh, you know when we're about to get a royal visitor. Because uh, all of a sudden flags start popping up along certain roadways every hundred meters. You know, there's Thai flags and a royal flag marking which member of the royal family is coming to visit. Um, maybe some stuff gets painted or some banners or ribbons and uh, stuff gets put along the, along the way that kind of spruces things up. You'll see them out painting the bridges or something, right? Paving, patching the roads, right? They're preparing the way. Uh, and then on the day of the visit, 
You'll be driving down the road and these very sharply dressed policemen in their best uniform will be out standing alongside the road. Right, waiting, 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 right. Say, oh, right, somebody important is coming, right? Uh, that's what, that's how they, they know that it's important to prepare when you have an important visitor coming. And we see that. Well, uh, certainly if that's true of, of royalty, how much more is it true when you're preparing for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? And so how do, how do we prepare for, for Christ? Now, of course, we know John the Baptist came preparing the way. And uh, it's easy to think, well, John prepared the way and Jesus came. And so we don't have to prepare. But actually, that's not true. I think part of the message here is that if you want Jesus to come, if you want to receive him, if you want to welcome him, we all have a call to prepare ourselves. Right? If Jesus is going to come into our life, if we're going to meet and encounter him, we need to be prepared. Right? So what do we do to prepare to welcome Christ into our life? And that's really what we want to look at. Uh, how does John help us prepare our own lives and our own heart for the coming of Christ? Um, well, he begins, uh, Mark begins by uh, reminding us that the plans, the preparation for this Messiah wasn't really John, but it was long before John during the days of the prophets, right? That the prophets foretold and warned us ahead of this one who is coming. So he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, he credits this to Isaiah. Actually, this is a, a composition of three Old Testament passages. One by uh, Isaiah, uh, would have been the longest and the most dominant. Maybe that's why he names Isaiah. Um, but also uh, from Exodus, actually, and from uh, Malachi. Uh, and uh, maybe we don't know if... if because Isaiah was the most famous or the most... We don't, we don't know why he names only Isaiah. It's just easier. I don't know. But the point is, it's the prophets, right? The prophets. And they had, they had foretold of this event, of this coming. Um, and uh, and it, uh, one of the unfortunate things is that because of our familiarity with John the Baptist, what we tend to do is we tend to see this... This, this quotation, these verses from the Old Testament, and we understand them in light of John the Baptist. Right? So we say, oh yeah, this is, this is what John the Baptist did. He came, he prepared the way, he was the voice crying in the wilderness. Um, but what we've got to understand is that for people who lived during uh, the days of John, before Jesus came, they would have understood these verses very differently. In fact, there's some evidence that these verses had actually been combined, that it wasn't actually Mark who brought these together, that, that the rabbis had actually brought together this, these three verses uh, to speak of the preparing for this one who was coming. Uh, so really, we, what we need to do is we need to understand John the Baptist in light of these verses, not the other way around, right? What does this tell us about who John the Baptist was and exactly what it was he was announcing of course, again, we, we assume that it's announcing Jesus, right? We know that. Uh, but is that really how they would have understood it? Well, when you look at these verses, uh, they, they're profound, right? And, and you've got to re- put yourself back in the context, okay? Before Jesus came, before John the Baptist came, 
It had been almost 400 years since a prophet had come. Right? Now this is in a, in a country and a people where uh, for a period, prophets were like showing up all the time. Like during the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all those guys. Like, like there was always a prophet. But all of a sudden now 400 years have gone by and, and there's been no word from God. Uh, but they had these promises, and, and these promises pointed to events which had not yet been fulfilled. So even though there hadn't been a prophet, there was certainly expectation that uh, these prophets had spoken of coming days, coming events that had not yet been fulfilled. And so they were looking forward to those things. Um, so here comes this, this word, right? Behold, I send my messenger. Uh, this is a quote from Exodus 23.20. Now, not even the prophets, right? This is actually going all the way back to Exodus. Uh, and it's not even a prophecy. It's actually just a quote when God was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And they went out into the wilderness. And he says, as they're out here in the wilderness, and they, they don't have a map, they don't have Google Maps, their phone's not working, they can't get Internet service, they're out in the wilderness, right? And they're like, we don't know where to go. How are we going to find our way in the wilderness? And he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared for you. Okay, so that's the first part of the quotation from Exodus 23.20. Hang on to that. Uh, remember that idea of Exodus, right? Next is Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then it goes on to uh, recount what God's going to do when he comes to his temple. Uh, and he's going to bring both great salvation and great judgment. Right? It's going to be a, a day when God will, will work out salvation, but he will also judge his enemies. And finally, uh, the, the biggest chunk of it comes from Isaiah 40. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All right, so in their original context, which, which the people reading it would have understood this. They, they knew the Old Testament. Uh, if, if you were tuned into and knew your Old Testament scriptures, you would be aware of the context of these verses. And the context is this. First, it's the context of the Exodus. Right, Israel being led out through the wilderness to the promised land by, by God who's going before them. Uh, secondly, uh, both in Malachi and Isaiah, it, it refers to one who announces the coming of God himself in salvation and in judgment. And in fact, in, in a later rabbinic uh, interpretation, uh, they had linked Malachi chapter 3, 1, this, this passage, with Malachi chapter 5, which says, uh, who, comes, uh, who comes before the... I'm sorry, uh, Malachi 5. Uh, links uh, this one who comes with Elijah, right? Who comes before the day of the Lord, it says in Malachi 5. right? He is the herald of the Messiah who will act in, 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 as God's agent. So Malachi 4, 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet... Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay, that's the context. So, so really, what is this passage announcing? 
is that announcing just the coming of Messiah, and not that just the coming of Messiah is a small thing, okay? But is that how they would have understood these verses? I don't think so, right? What they really would have understood is this uh, promise that God was going to send his messenger uh, before the people, uh, as he did in the Exodus, to bring about a second Exodus. Okay, a second great day of the Lord, a great day of deliverance and rescue and salvation. Right? So for them, they would have understood it not so much as announcing a person, but this great saving work of God. A great new saving work of God. A second exodus. Greater than the first exodus. Right? Uh, where God would call them out into the wilderness to a new, a new deliverance. A new work of saving. Right? Uh, this is pointing to a second and greater exodus that will be announced by this forerunner ushering in the great day of the Lord. And if you know much about the Old Testament, you know that the great day of the Lord was kind of the final day of the Lord, right? And so he's looking at ushering in this great final kingdom uh, where God would would establish his his kingdom and his reign and his rule. Uh, We saw this in Daniel chapter 2. If you were with us as we looked through the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, Remember this great statue of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar envisioned in his dream uh, with the head of gold and chest of bronze and uh, on down to legs of iron and feet of, of steel, uh, iron and clay. And in the end, what happens? Right, A huge stone is hewn out of the mountain and this stone flies across and smashes the statue to pieces. And Daniel interprets it this way. He says, and in the, in, in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring an end to them. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this, right? And, and so this is the kind of event that, that this prophecy is, is, is proclaiming, right? This great coming of the kingdom. Uh, it's interesting in Isaiah 40, which uh, it quotes, is a famous passage, famous chapter. Uh, go back and read that chapter. Amazing picture. And it really pictures God carrying out the second exodus, carrying the people... Along In verse 9 of Isaiah 40, it says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Behold your God. Behold the God, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. In other words, his salvation, right? His giving people what they deserve. Judgment. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Right, it's this picture of God shepherding again in a second exodus, shepherding them into a new land of promise. Right, so this is a passage of great expectation. Not only in the coming of a Messiah, but a great work of God bringing about both salvation to those who are his 
and uh, judgment to those who are his enemies. And so this is a big deal. And, and, and uh, you better be ready, right? That's kind of the point. If this event is about to break through, you better be prepared, right? The great coming day of the Lord, you better be ready. So how do you prepare yourself? Well, it says uh, that John is the is this forerunner. John is the one who fulfills this prophecy as the voice crying in the wilderness. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, there's some confusion about how this could be translated. It could, it could also be a translated, John appeared in the wilderness, baptizing, uh, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Um, it's important to note here that the wilderness is not is not optional. Okay, there's something important about the wilderness. He's not baptizing in Jerusalem, which is significant, right? Now you may think, well, you know, the River Jordan was not in Jerusalem, right? He needed water to baptize, and some people say, well, you know, he was baptizing at the Jordan because there was lots of water. But the reality is, all you needed is a bathtub to, to baptize. You didn't need a whole river. And, uh, and they actually practice baptism. They've, they've uncovered uh, baptism, uh, Jewish baptismals where they would baptize, and it didn't require that much water. Um, he could have done it in Jerusalem. But it was important that it was done in the wilderness uh, because uh, it's reenacting what? Well, this exodus, right? God's calling the people, God called the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness. Now he's calling them again out of Jerusalem into the wilderness, right? And out there they are to be baptized. And he's proclaiming this baptism of repentance. And we see that basically John prepares for the Messiah, prepares for Christ, by doing two important activities. And uh, Mark wastes no words. He doesn't talk a lot about uh, the content of John's preaching. Uh, he, he spares us the bashing, the scribes and Pharisees, who warned you of the wrath to come, right? None of that. But we just get two quick pictures of, of, of how John prepares the way. And the first is through this baptism of repentance, right? Um, what was the baptism of repentance? Well, uh, they were to prepare their hearts, right? Uh, first of all, by repenting. Right? So the people were coming out from Jerusalem, they were coming out to the Jordan River, and, and John is preaching to them, and he's basically telling them, repent of your sins. And uh, this was a requirement before they could get baptized. Now, I don't know exactly how this worked, but uh, he preached to them and told them to repent, and if they repented, if they confessed their sins, uh, he would baptize them. Uh, so what, what is repentance? Well, repentance... It is most basic meaning simply means a change of mind. Uh, but it was used in the Old Testament to speak of a deliberate turning away from sin and toward God, right? It was this recognition that your life was headed in a direction that was wrong, right? You were headed towards death. You were headed towards destruction. You were headed in a, in a direction away from God, right? And, and John's message to them was, look, you all, you, you think you are God worshipers, but you're not. Right? You are, you are following your own path. You are not worshiping God. You are not honoring God. 
You're headed, your life is headed in the wrong direction. And the day of the Lord is coming, and you're not ready because you are not worshiping and following God. You need to turn around. You need to repent. You need to change the direction of your life and confess those sins, meaning admit that your life is not right with God. Admit that your life is full of sin and error and rebellion against God and turn back to Him. Turn back to Him. You're, You're not a good person. Right? You're not living the way God calls you to. Uh, and amazingly, uh, as, as John preached this message, many people responded. You know, we live in a day and an age where it's not, it's, it's, it's considered politically incorrect to talk about sin, right? If, if you tell somebody, your lifestyle does not honor God, well, that's hate speech, right? It means you hate them. It means that you're being bigoted. Well, John must have been a bigot. I don't know. He must have been pretty hateful because he was telling people, look, your life is wrong. You're, you're, the way you are living is sinful. But uh, God was working and people responded to that message. And it says they confessed their sins. They agreed. They admitted, yes, I am not worthy. I am not worthy of God. I am not in a place where I am prepared for this coming of God. I am not prepared and, and ready to meet him. Right? Um, and then they would get baptized. Um, what, what was this baptism? Now, it's important to understand, you know, we live in, in kind of the church age where we do this, right? People put their faith in Christ and we invite them when they put their faith in Christ to be baptized. And so, you know, we go over here to the swimming pool and we dunk them underwater and it's this picture of new life. But what did it mean to the Israelites, those coming out to to John in that day? Well, baptism wasn't actually a commonly practiced thing, right? It wasn't, it really wasn't a thing back then. And so what exactly did it mean? Well, there were a couple of ways that uh, this type of thing was done. And the first was ceremonial washing. So if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jew, and you touched a dead body, for example, or you did some other things where you were made unclean, uh, one of the ways that you would deal with that uncleanness is you'd have to go through some rituals, but one of those was to be cleansed, to be washed, right? And so baptism was was a kind of washing like that. Uh, And this was kind of an exaggerated or extended form of that. So it certainly pictured uh, this washing, but... um, but it was never done for forgiveness of sins. Like nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that if you take a bath, your sins will be removed. Right? That, 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 that was never taught. And yet John says he's, he's, he's pre- pre- preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, it's taking this baptism to a new, le- a new level. Like this is new theology here. So where does this come from? Right? Well, uh, there's another picture, though, involved with baptism this closer to what John was actually doing. And that was a, a ceremony that was done for, for Gentiles, right? So if you were a Gentile living in, say, Judea or Jerusalem, and you uh, decided, maybe you married a, a, a Jewish person, which would have been actually against the law for them, but it happened. Uh, but you decided, uh, you know, I want, to become a, I want to become a Jew. I want to, I want to buy into the whole thing, Right? Well, there was a number of things you would have to do to, to get there, to become Jewish. 
And one of them was to be baptized, right? And it was a, a way of identifying yourself now with, with the people, God's, God's people. And so you would do these other things. You would have to agree to follow the law. If you were a male, you would have to get circumcised. And then you would be baptized, right? But these are not Gentiles being baptized, right? These are Jewish people being baptized. And so for them to come out and say, well, I'm, I'm going through this ceremony or this ritual that's a rite of Gentiles was kind of insulting, right? Uh, it'd be kind of like me saying, you know, I know you all think you're Christians. I know you all think you've been baptized, but I'm telling you, you've got to get baptized again, right? Because you haven't been baptized by me. And you'd be like, what? Like, who are you, right? Like, this is kind of insulting. Like, I'm already a Jew. I don't need to be made more Jewish. What, what, what is this, right? But I think what, what John is saying here is, look, God is about to do a new work of salvation, He's about to start a new exodus. And he is going to be calling out a new people of God. Right? And if you want to be among this new people of God, among this new work of God, this new saving work of God, you need to be baptized. You need to be identified with this new people. Because your old Jewishness is not going to be enough. Right? Because why? Because this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Right? This is a new work. This is going to be a new covenant. This is going to be a new way that you enter into relationship, covenant relationship with God. And so it requires becoming a new kind of person. Right? So it really does look forward. Well, what about this forgiveness of sins? Okay, that's what baptism means, but how is it how is it possible that John's baptism could forgive sin? Well, uh, I don't believe it, it could, right? It's anticipating what Jesus is going to do, right? It's anticipating the gospel. It's anticipating the life and, and work of Christ, who through his death on the cross would make uh, the cleansing from sin possible in a way it never had before, right? So it's not that John was was bringing about forgiveness through his baptism, but through this they were preparing for Jesus who would come, who would bring forgiveness of sins as he would lift the burden of their sin and take it upon himself on the cross, paying its penalty, and by his blood washing us clean. Right? Um, so they come, and they're being baptized. And then he kind of throws in this reminder of John's uh, appearance. He was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, the point of that is to identify uh, uh, John with Elijah, right? So again, it ties back into this verse in, in Malachi, right? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes, right? Uh, he's pictured looking like Elijah did, right? And I don't know why this is, why, why but uh, Elijah uniquely wore this leather belt, right? So all of you guys got your leather belt. You're looking like Elijah, right? We're looking like Elijah. Uh, and so that's what marked John as a, a, uh, another Elijah, all right, so that's the first thing that, that, that John does to prepare, is he, 
He calls them to prepare their hearts through repentance, through the confessing of sin, admitting uh, their desperate need for forgiveness. But the second thing that John does to prepare the way is to proclaim the one who will come. Right? And uh, again, we may miss this because we just make the assumption that what John is preparing the way for is Jesus. Uh, but again, that's not how they would have necessarily understood these verses originally. Right? They would have understood it more preparing the way for God, who's going to work out this, this great work of salvation through a second exodus. Right? But, but John says no. He says in verse 7, he preached, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? So, so for John, this is not just about an event, but it's about a person. Right? And uh, just, just to kind of frame this a little bit, give some background, you've got to understand that... Uh, in, in John's day, John was, was, was really kind of a rock star, right? I mean, here's a guy, imagine this, there's, not, there's been a prophet for 400 years, and all of a sudden this guy shows up, crazy guy out in the wilderness eating grasshoppers and honey, dressed in this wool suit with a crazy Elijah leather belt, and he's preaching like a madman out by the Jordan River, and he's dunking people underwater, like this is new, Right? And, and so, and people were flocking out to him by the thousands, thousands, right? Why? Because this was a big deal. This was, this was, like, this was huge. And, and nobody was like, was like, John who? Like, they knew, right? Herod knew. Everybody knew. The Pharisees, the scribes, everybody knew John the Baptist. There were t-shirts, there was posters, I don't know. He had his own YouTube channel, right? Um, he was huge. He was huge. Now, of course, John is not in it for his own glory. He's not soaking in the glory. But we got to understand, he's like the Billy Graham of his day. And he's, he's bringing about this incredible revival. Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to have this kind of fruit? Like, I go out and preach, and people are coming from all over Ching Rai and all the provinces to hear you. Like, that would be a big deal. Right? And yet, what John says is, look, it's not me. Like, I'm just pointing to the one. The one you've got to watch for is the one who comes after me. Because he's the real show. I'm just the warm-up act, right? Watch for the one who comes after me. He says, first of all, that he is mightier than I am. Right? This one who comes is mightier. This is... Again, don't, under, don't miss what he's saying here. Here's a guy who's speaking with incredible authority. He's telling people, for the first time in 400 years, you bunch of sinners repent. And they, they believe him. And they listen and they fall down and they repent and they confess their sins. He's preaching with incredible authority. Incredible authority. So much so that the scribes and Pharisees don't like him. Right? They threaten him. He's a threat to them. Incredible authority and power. And he says, there's one coming who has greater authority than me. Greater authority. Right? Uh, he will come preaching an even more powerful word. 
of conviction and truth. Right? Secondly, he says, he says, in this one, I'm not even worthy to loosen uh, his sandals. Right? This is the one who comes with even greater honor and glory than, than, than John. And again, John is like he's somebody, right? Um, he reached a level of fame and greatness any YouTuber or TikToker would be jealous of, right? Like he, he was top of the charts. Uh, and, and people were kind of in awe of him. But he's saying, look, I am so, this, this guy is so much greater than me, the one who comes after me that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. What's interesting, in, in, um, in, in Jewish law, in the rabbinic law, um, if you were a slave, if you were a, a Jewish slave, you had to just about do anything that you were told to, except one thing, right? And the one thing you were exempt from was what? Untying your master's shoes, right? Interestingly, and those, they found rabbinic uh, law saying this, uh, uh, it's, it's too low, it's too degrading of a slave to untie uh, his master's shoes. You're exempt from that one, right? And, and yet John says, look, he is so great that uh, I'm not even worthy to do a task that's like too lowly for a slave to do, right? In other words, that's how much greater this one is than, than me. That much greater. That much greater in honor and glory and status and position. But finally, and the most remarkable thing that he says is that uh, he will carry out and accomplish an even greater ministry. And again, this is kind of hard to imagine. Here's a guy who's brought all of Judea and Jerusalem out to the Jordan River, and he has baptized probably tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. We don't know. Huge crowds were being baptized, and people were confessing sin. And turning back to God in ways they hadn't done for hundreds of years. He says, that's nothing compared to what this one is going to do. Because I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, what is water compared to the Holy Spirit? Well, they're, they're so, like, there's no comparison, right? Uh, yeah, you can wash your hands in water, but what can you do with the Holy Spirit, right? Now, uh, we, of course, we know that, and again, we, we kind of jump ahead to the story, and we know, well, yeah, Jesus comes, and he died, and on Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit, and boom, it happened, right? We've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. But that kind of oversimplifies and actually misses the point of what, what, what John is saying here, right? Um, it's true, like I want to emphasize it's true, if you put your faith in Christ, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? Right? Uh, no, notice that John's baptism with water doesn't simply mean he's giving them water. Right? It meant that the channel of his ministry was done through, uh, through water. Right? Through this picture, this symbol uh, of baptism in water. Uh, and really what he's saying here is Jesus isn't just giving us the Holy Spirit, but he's baptizing us. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will accomplish his work in ministry. And certainly that was true uh, for Jesus' life. Right? Jesus accomplished all these miracles and did all these great things for God by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, uh, casting out demons, healing people, giving sight to the blind, and opening their eyes to the truth. 
right? It wasn't just Jesus convincing words. It was through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, People were blind not only outwardly, but in their hearts they were spiritually blind. And we see this through the Gospel of Mark, right? Uh, Even Jesus uh, has limited effect before the cross, because people are, are blinded to the truth. And even his own disciples just don't get it, right? But eventually the Holy Spirit comes and it's the Holy Spirit who opens their eyes. Right? It's the Holy Spirit who makes the work of Jesus uh, visible and evident and understandable. Right? So, uh, so Jesus does a much greater work, uh, not just through water, but that's all just a picture of what Jesus will do. And the greatest picture of all is that, of course, taking a bath can cleanse you of outside dirt. Although I've seen the Jordan River, and I don't know that washing in the Jordan River would actually make you that clean. It's kind of a muddy river. Um, uh, But even at that, it's only external. But it pictured a much greater cleansing that Jesus would accomplish through the cross, right? And, And the work of Jesus, his blood cleanses us, and that cleansing work is affected through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's the Holy Spirit that applies the blood of Jesus to our life that brings full forgiveness and full cleansing. And ultimately, who makes us, who gives us spiritual birth. Right? And that's the most significant part of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that our sins are taken away. It's that we become new people in Christ. We have new birth. Spiritual birth, John talks about in John 3. We become spiritually reborn. And that's essential if we are to be in the kingdom. If we're to worship him in spirit and in truth, we must be born of the spirit. And that's the ministry that Jesus will accomplish. True spiritual birth for us. Not just external cleansing, but inward and complete transformation through uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. So, so, so understand that John prepares for Jesus' coming in these two important ways. First, through the baptism of repentance, by calling people to confess their sins and to confess their, their urgent need for forgiveness, for grace. And secondly, by announcing uh, the superior nature and ministry of this one who will come, of Jesus. Right? That, that John was great, but by comparison he was nothing. He was nothing. Because of the greatness of the one who would come. Uh, and and so, so John prepares Israel and the nation for, for Jesus' uh, ministry, right? uh, which is about to begin. Uh, let me just close with uh, applying this to our own lives. How do we prepare our own hearts to receive Jesus? Right? Then you may say, well, I already got saved. I've already received Jesus. Um, good. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think Jesus wants to be an ever-coming, ever-present person who's actively welcomed into our life. Right? And to do that, we, we have, like, like John's audience, we have to prepare our hearts. Right? And there's three critical things that must be true of us if we're going to uh, receive Jesus well. And the first thing is we need to go into the wilderness. 
I, th- I think it would be brilliant if we could all do this literally, like fly off to the desert in Africa somewhere where there's no internet, there's no electricity, there's no anything. Uh, practically speaking, that may not be possible. Um, but, but what does it mean to go into the wilderness? Uh, John called his people, they, uh, they couldn't do this through a Zoom call. Right? They had to go there, they had to go out to the wilderness, and he called them out to the wilderness. And it was important, it was as much part of the symbol as the baptism was. Right? And so what does it mean for us to go out into the wilderness? Well, if you remember, this, this picture goes back to the Exodus, when they were called out into the wilderness from Egypt, and, you know, Egypt was nice. And, and, and remember the experience of Israel. Remember how this worked for them? First day when they were set free from slavery, they were rejoicing. This is awesome. We have freedom. We are no longer slaves. This is great, right? Day two, yeah, this is good. Day three, they're way far away now from, from Egypt. They're way out in the wilderness. Uh, there's no longer cell phone service, Right? There's no internet. They're like, there's no, there's no water, actually. There's no food. And they're all of a sudden like, oh, wait a minute. Can we go back to Egypt? <laughs> we kind of liked it better there, right? Um, as it turns out, the wilderness is not such a happy place. There's no 7-Eleven. Who knew? Right? Ah, what are we going to eat? And they start grumbling and complaining. Right. Well, uh, and, and then God shows up, and, and as we quote it, He says, "No, I am going to guide you through. I am going to be with you. I am going to be a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. I am going to lead you. I am going to care for you." Right. But here's the tricky part of the wilderness: is there's no backup plan. All you got is God. Right. All you have is Him. Uh, and that's a scary place to be, but it is the only place to be if you want salvation, right? Salvation is not like it gets practiced in many places around Asia, where uh, Jesus becomes just one more thing I tack on my shelf of good luck charms, right? I got, I got this good luck charm from this religion, I got this good luck charm from religion, I'll add, I'll add Jesus, one more good luck charm doesn't work that way, right? You've got to leave behind Egypt. You've got to leave behind the world. You've got to leave behind all the ways the world says you can get saved and put yourself in a place of total dependence where there is only Jesus, right? Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other religion. There's no other faith. There's no other way. Uh, that's what it means to go to the wilderness. Right? You destroy all the other idols and all the other things that you have hoped in to save you. I remember one time talking, many years ago, talking to a college intern who was out here working with one of our projects and really lovely young girl who, you know, wanted to serve God. And, and she said to me, she said, you know, it's just so hard to really trust God when we, when we live in a place where we have so much affluence and wealth, and I just have everything I need, you know. My parents have a lot of money, and I just have everything I need. And it really is hard to trust God because I just don't really need him. And I said, well, that's easy to fix. And she said, really? What, do I, can I, what can I do? I said, well, just give away all your stuff. She said, well, that's not very funny. And I said, well, I wasn't joking, 
Right? And she didn't, she did not like my humor. But it's like, yeah, of course it's easy when you're trusting in all of that stuff. But it's a really easy cure. Just get rid of it all. Right? Get, get rid of it all. Quit trusting in those things. Right? If you really want to prepare the way for Jesus to come into your life, you need to go to the wilderness. Right? You need to put yourself in a place where he is all there is and you're not trusting in anything else. You're trusting in anything else. Second thing, um, we prepare for him through the act of repentance. Right? Now, we don't practice a baptism of repentance, uh, but certainly repentance is a key step in coming to faith in Christ. Right? And, and this is the wonderful truth of the gospel uh, nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere does Jesus ever say, look, if you want to come to me, you need to get your life together. You're a wreck, and you know, I can't, I can't be accepting somebody who's messed up like you. You want to kind of get saved, you, you need to clean up your act first. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. In fact, it says the very opposite. It says what you need to do is you need to come to me admitting how messed up your life is. That's the first step, Right? Uh, Jesus says later on in the Gospels, he said, look, it's not, it's not healthy people who seek a doctor. It's sick people. Right? Uh, I've landed this wonderful cold. I've got this terrible cough. It's super annoying. Um, when I was healthy, I, I didn't think about going to a doctor. Now I'm thinking, oh, should I go to the doctor, right? Will the doctor be able to help me? That's what, that's what being sick does. It makes you seek help. And, and, and Jesus says, look, the gospel starts with realizing you are in desperate need of a Savior, of forgiveness. And we do that by confessing our sins, right? by admitting our failures and our weaknesses, our evil desires. And that the only way to cleansing is through grace, through the gift that Jesus offers through his blood. Right? Um, we can never come to Christ if we are not honest about our sin. And it's not only before we come and get saved, but the Bible makes it clear that it's to be a, a regular practice of confessing our need for him. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to pretend we're good. We can be honest about how really messed up we are. But it is through that that we come to receive grace and forgiveness. Right? John, First John one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? Cleansing and forgiveness begins with confession. And that should be a part of our, our daily preparation to receive Christ, to receive his grace, to receive his mercy. Lastly, uh, Jesus, uh, John came proclaiming one who is greater, who would do a greater work. Right? We receive him by putting faith in this one who is the greatest. Not just greater, but the greatest. Right? Um, uh, John's baptism pictured this cleansing, this washing. Uh, Jesus is the one who brings the, the reality of it this true inner cleansing of our sin through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit uh, who makes us a new people of God. Right? Uh, John writes it this way in John chapter 1. Jesus came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? We become the new people of God by trusting in him, by trusting in this one who is greater than even John, right? who does this work through the power of the Holy Spirit and makes us a new people of God. Beloved, John says in his epistle, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who puts, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Right? Um, it's a new year tomorrow. Uh, do you want it to be a new year where you experience Jesus like you never have before? That's why we want to look at the Gospel of Mark. We want to encounter Jesus in a new way, in a fresh way that we never have before. Uh, as we prepare for a new year, let's prepare for a new work of Christ. Okay? By, by going to the wilderness, by confession, by faith. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.